morning, have you ever gotten a wave from someone, a nice friendly wave from someone? Most of us have, right? And have you ever gotten a wave from someone that wasn't really waving at you? This was my freshman year in college. It was before I ever met Mary. Well, I've met Mary, but not really, a little bit. Uh, we, we'd been in the same place. so But we were not together. I did not even know that one day we would be together. But there was a nice pretty girl that I had met earlier in that year. And uh, she was waving at me. And so I get kind of happy. And I wave back in this crowded campus. And I look... And she's waving at some guy behind me, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and But she was a nice girl, I guess, because then she sees me, the big dummy, waving. And so she gives me this little pity wave, right? That happens sometimes. It, it makes you feel bad. But it didn't make me feel as bad as probably about two years ago. I'm walking in the neighborhood just trying to get some nice exercise. And a friendly neighbor drives the car, stops, and starts waving at me. And I think, well, I don't really know this person, but that's a nice, friendly neighbor. I'm waving at them, and they are not looking at me at all. And I think, okay, they got me again. And I go to look at who it is they're waving at behind me that's much better than me, obviously. And it's a dog. (laughs) They're waving at a dog. (laughs) So that was, uh, I thought, huh, I guess I've really fallen (laughs) several notches down. Sometimes we try to take credit for something that we didn't do and it makes us feel a little embarrassed. But sometimes we do something that we didn't intend to do and it actually works out to our favor. Have you ever get made a phone call to someone and you're, you're wanting to talk about something specific and you find out on the phone, they say something like, well, thank you so much for calling me on my birthday. Well, of course I called you on your birthday. It's your birthday. That's why I'm calling you. Don't worry about the other stuff we're about to talk about. I am calling to wish you a happy birthday, right? Sometimes we, uh, we do that. We, get to, we take advantage of, of something that we said, something that we did, and we didn't ever really intend to do it. Well, in Scripture, there are some prophecies that are done by people that never really intended to prophesy about God. Matter of fact, at the end of last week, I really appreciate Chris coming in. I think Chris uh, is watching now or he'll be watching watching soon. And, and I appreciate the lesson that Chris brought to us because it was a lesson filled exactly with what the theme of this whole series is, is life. And I was a little nervous at first because his his title of his, his sermon was death. And I was like, oh, well, that's but. He brought how it wasn't death and it's life and, and, uh, and, and he got through all that so, so nice and I appreciate him doing that. But at the very end of chapter 11, the high priest prophesies about Jesus and he doesn't even realize that he's prophesying about Jesus. In verse uh, 49 of chapter 11, it says, then one night, or then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year spoke up, says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make together and make them one. You see, the high priest prophesied that Jesus was going to die. 
And it was through Jesus' death that all people could be saved. The Jewish nation, then all of God's scattered children would one day be saved. And right now, we are moving to a shift in the Gospel of John. The first half of John is all about His signs, and He's calling you to believe in these signs. And when you believe in these signs, when you believe in Him as the Son of God, you will receive life. And you will experience life through Him. The whole time He's showing these signs, but he, he goes all the way up to the resurrection and showing that He has the power over death with the resurrection of Lazarus. And He wants you to believe that there is life in Him. But now we're going to shift in John. And no longer are we going to see signs of Jesus outside of the sign of Him going to resurrect from the dead. And that will be that, that's something that, that we get to celebrate next week. We celebrate it every week. But the, the resurrection from the dead, the empty tomb, gets us excited. And He is going to point His way to that. But He's going to be with His disciples from now on. And He's going to be giving some teachings to His disciples from now on. And John spends the first half really quickly getting to this last week, and the second half is all one week. And the last and final week of Jesus' ministry and life here on this earth before He ascends to heaven and dwells within us. And so, in the second half of John, He wants us to remember that the Passover is coming. And like I've told you before, and like Joe did a, did a great job of telling us today, that people forget. And so God wanted to remind His people that, uh, there is, that, that who He was and how He rescues us, and He also wants to reveal to His people Jesus through all these different festivals. And the most important of these festivals is the Passover. And this is the third time John mentions the Passover. Matter of fact, that's how we know Jesus' ministry was three years long because we can look at the three different Passovers. And John tells us that the Passover is in six days. And what he's wanting us to understand is Jesus' ministry here on this earth, Jesus is going to be with us for six more days or for, for about a week, Jesus is going to be here. And then He's going to be the Passover Lamb. We know He's the Passover Lamb because in the very first chapter, John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It lets us see at the very beginning that Jesus is going to be the Passover Lamb. He is going to be the one that takes away the sins of the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John also writes about, he says, He Himself, when He's talking about Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. You see, the Passover lamb isn't just the atoning sacrifice for our sins, which it is. It does give us forgiveness of sins, but it also is meant as a deliverance from this world. This world that is in the hands of Satan. And he is going to deliver us from sin. He's going to deliver us from this slavery. He is going to deliver us from this bondage to, to Satan and He is going to allow us to be free. To be free in Him and give us this eternal life. In John chapter 12, verse 1, He reminds us that we are six days from the Passover. And then it gives us, He paints us a picture of what it's like to be around Jesus. And he shows us all of Jesus, all these disciples of Jesus, and he shows them at a dinner in honor of Jesus. 
In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, or whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I love how he paints this picture. Lazarus, who has been raised from the dead, he, he talks about he's just, he's just reclining at the table. Lazarus is sitting all, as the young people would say, chill, right? Uh, I don't know if they still say that. I'm a year removed from youth ministry. But Lazarus is just chilling out at the table. He can take it easy right now. He's been through quite a bit. Martha is serving everyone because that's what Martha does. And Mary is at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Him and anointing Him with this incredibly expensive perfume. How expensive was this perfume? It's described in there as worth a year's wages. What does that tell us about Mary? She probably had a little bit of money, right? I don't know if any of you have something in your house that's worth a year's wages, something as simple as a perfume or something like that that's just a year's wages. I don't have that just lying around. But Mary did. And so it makes us think, is that something that you should really should do? You spend a, you take a year's wages just to pour a nice fragrant anointing on someone? A lot of the disciples thought that that might have been a little bit wasteful. And so some of them said, matter of fact, in this in, in John's version, it just talks about Judas, but in the other versions it says all of them kind of had a little bit of a little bit of disagreement for her doing that. And so in verse four it says, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed Jesus, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and a keeper of the money bag. He used it to help himself to what was put into it. So at the very beginning of this chapter, we see something about how we honor Jesus. And we see something about uh, what does it mean to be wealthy and what does it mean to be poor? Now, is it a sin to be wealthy? In here, it doesn't look like it's a sin to be wealthy, but it's what you do with your wealth. Do you honor God with your wealth? Do you take the wealth that you have and you honor God in such a way, in such a, a lavish way that shows Him how much you love Him? That's what Mary did. Or, do you take the wealth that you're given and you try to take it away from God? You take all these accolades, everything, all the blessings that you've been, that you've been given and you take them away from God and you use them for yourself. Use them for selfish gain because that's what Judas does and that kind of shows us what the heart of Judas was like. You see, it's not a sin to be wealthy and it's not a sin to be poor, nor is it more godly to be wealthy, more godly to be poor, but it's what we do with what we've been given. And that's what Jesus wants to say to him. He tells him in verse 7, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. You see, Jesus wants us to understand 
that what we have, we need to bless Him with. And sometimes that means that we bless Him by blessing poor folks. And we use our money and resources to bless His people. And sometimes it's to bless His church. But we always need to be mindful of what God's given us. And bless Him and go to Him and remember who gave us all these blessings. But in there, there's also something that's kind of looming. And that she's doing this because he is about to die. And she's preparing him for burial. She might not even realize that that's what she's doing, but this was to prepare him for burial. And it's kind of weird and it's hard for them to understand because they are at the height of their celebration in Jesus because Jesus just showed them that they have, he has the power over death. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus is more powerful than death. He's showing them this, and yet He's saying He's about to die. And it's probably something that they don't fully understand, and they kind of just want to gloss over and move past it. Matter of fact, all the people in the town probably want to gloss over that and move past it. They, they have other plans for Jesus. Because the next day it says, Jesus goes into the town, into Jerusalem, In verse 12, it says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival had heard Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet Him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, His disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about Him and what had to be done to Him. Now the crowd that was with Him when He called now the crowd that was with Him when He called Lazarus from the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard what that He had performed this sign, went out to meet Him. Jesus' popularity is at an all-time high. There is nothing that Jesus can't do at this time. People are looking to Him. People are praising Him. They're shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. They're waving these palm branches, welcoming Him into the city as their King, as their Savior. Matter of fact, everyone is so excited about Jesus, there is nothing that the authorities that want to destroy Him can do about it. They're getting kind of nervous. They know they don't have the power to take out Jesus because Jesus has the influence of the people. In verse 19 it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after Him. The whole world has gone after Jesus. Everyone is following Him. Everyone wants something that Jesus has to offer because Jesus offers life. Jesus gives sight to the blind. Jesus makes the lame walk. Jesus feeds the the stomachs of those that are hungry. Jesus is going to be their triumphant King that's going to bring Israel to a great nation once again. They're excited about what Jesus has installed for them. Matter of fact, it's not just the Jews that are excited, but there's all sorts of folks that come around to this festival. And we're going to learn about these Greeks that come down to the festival. And it might seem weird to think that these Greeks would come to a, to a foreign god and worship him. But it's not that out of character because 
Think about who the Greeks were. They worshipped all sorts of different gods. And so that means the message had spread all up into the Greek, uh, the Greek nations. And so they came down and they were, they're sitting at this festival and they want to see this man who is God in flesh that is doing all these incredible miracles. And so what do they do? They go and they find the most Greek person out there and, and that would probably be Philip. And, and Philip has a very Greek name. If you remember from history classes, Alexander the Great's father is named Philip. And so Philip is a, is a Jewish man, but he has a, he has a very Greek name. And so they go to Philip and they want to talk to Jesus. And so they ask Philip if he'll let them talk to Jesus. Verse 20, it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went to the worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. See, all through Scripture, all through the book of John so far, people were wanting Jesus to do things for them. People were trying to get Jesus to listen to them. From the very beginning, chapter 2, when Jesus' mother says, listen to Him. They've run out of wine, right? Listen to, listen to Him. Do what He says. What does Jesus say? My time has not come yet. And then all throughout Scripture, it starts talking about my hour's not here yet. And they would try to arrest him or they try to stone him and he'd slip away into the crowds because his hour had not come yet. But something specific was happening here where Jesus realized that this time when he walks into Jerusalem, when the whole world is turning to him, his hour has now come. This is the time that he had planned for from the very beginning, before the world was ever created, this is now the time for Jesus to be revealed. For His glory to be revealed to the people. It was time for Him to die for the people. In verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for an eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor those, honor the one who serves me. It's this time that Jesus is going to be glorified. But it's not how the people want. They want to see this, this, man, this man that has that, that's from God do exactly what they want him to do. To drive out the Romans, to feed their stomachs, to, to uh, heal the sick, to resurrect the dead. That's what they want. And Jesus wants to deliver them from their bondage of sin. Deliver them from the slavery that they are, they are in. Deliver them from the evil one so that they can have an eternal life with them. But it's going to take a sacrifice because He is the Passover lamb. His response isn't going to be good for the crowd because the crowd is going to see that He's not doing what they want Him to do. Although He's going to do something so much greater. 
And he's not only saying he's going to give his life for them, that he's got to die, but he tells them they're going to have to change their lives. They're going to have to accept his death. They're also going to have to hate the things of this world so that they can live a much better life. So they can live a much more abundant life. They're going to have to die to themselves and live for Him. This is something that they didn't want to do. And so you'll see in one week's time that they're trying to usher Him in as their king. They're now going to turn against Him. And they're going to fulfill prophecy, meaning that they're going to have to kill Him so that He can die, so that He can give them new life. He knows this is going to happen. And so in verse 27 it says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. What's He saying here? is before the world was ever created, this hour was what the world was going to, was, was what, what He was looking for. This time when He's going to go to the cross, and it's not going to be easy to go to the cross, He's going to be tortured. But He's also going to rise again. It was for this hour that He came. And He's willing to do it. Why? Because He loves you. Because He loves me. And He wants us to be with Him. But it wasn't enough for so many people. And still today, it's not enough for so many people. A lot of people don't want to believe it. A lot of people are going to be blind to it. A lot of people are going to choose to live their own lives, their own selfish desires. They're going to choose to live how the world wants them to live. In verse 37, it says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in Him. But this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they could neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about Him. So there's kind of an interesting thing that's in here. Why didn't the people believe? Well, if you look at this verse only, in this verse it says they didn't believe because God blinded them and didn't allow them to believe. And that very well could be the case that God blinded them and God didn't allow them to believe. If you go just with that Scripture, it looks that way. However, I think that's kind of an interesting Scripture because it's sandwiched in between a lot of things that were say, that Jesus would just go out there and try to get them to believe. And some would believe. And then Jesus would say why some wouldn't believe. It's because they didn't, they didn't want it in their hearts. They chose to live for worldly things. They chose to live for the things of man. Matter of fact, when we talk about blindness, we have to go back to, to chapter 9. When the Pharisees who were against him went to Jesus and they said in chapter 9, verse 40, what, are we blind too? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. 
What's he saying to them? If you are blinded, if God blinded you, if you had no choice in this matter, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But right now you're acknowledging that the blind have been given sight. You're acknowledging that that Lazarus is raised from the dead. You're acknowledging that the lame can walk. You're acknowledging all these sorts of things. And yet you're choosing not to believe. You're choosing to be blind, I think, is what is what's being said here. And when I think about that, I think about times in my life when I choose to be blind. And maybe it's not just the, uh, something that I that I uh, I am I am uh, specifically just trying to think about how I can be blind to something, but there's things that I love so much that I blind myself to this world. So I was raised uh, I was raised in an in an Aggie home, and I went to Texas A and M University. And if you sat here and you talked to me about how University of Texas was better than Texas A&M, you would be talking to a brick wall because I wouldn't listen to that, right? I'm blind to that. No matter how many good things you could say about about why this college is better than A&M, I couldn't hear it because I love something so much more than this. Maybe it's not something like college, but maybe it's something with politics with you. And you hear you have a particular party that you like, and you're just gonna you're just not gonna believe anything else. Because I really love this. Or maybe it's something even worse. And it's sin that you have in your heart. I was in a I was in a a, uh, a class once about infidelity with spouses. And certain when people get in affairs, their mind starts to change. Matter of fact, they, they will they will wish death on their spouse and even their kids to make it easier for them to go and live in this life of sin. We like to do a lot of things like that. We like to blind ourselves to the world of sin. We like to tell ourselves these lies. Because sin is what we crave. And I think in this situation, God is going to allow them to fill their heart's desires, to, to allow them to blind themselves. And Paul kind of explains it quite well in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible, the, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal humans, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires to their sinful desires of their hearts. Sin is so strong, sin can blind us. And whatever's happening right in front of us, God can raise people from the dead, and we choose to live the way of the world. See, in this, 
prophecy of Isaiah, I think, was, was uh, a result. The unbelief was resulted in the fulfillment of prophecy rather than in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled. People chose to be blind. They chose not to see what God is doing right before their eyes. God allowed them to have the desires of their heart. And the scary thing is we still live that way. And sometimes we see these worldly pleasures. And God's not going to force us to love Him. God's not going to force us to follow Him. God is out there and He's begging us to come to Him, right? He's willing to do anything. He's willing to give His Son to this very hour so that we can have eternal life. And yet we look for worldly pleasures. Right after that prophecy, John talks in verse 42, he says, Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in Him. But because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. They saw what He was doing. They believed in Him. But they weren't going to commit their lives to Him. They weren't going to commit their lives to someone that conquered death. Someone that they saw was, was, was the uh, new King David, right? Their Hosanna. They were waving palm branches, but then they were nervous about what the world would think and they chose to live their life for their worldly desires and worldly passions. What's going on in your life? What's keeping you from, from seeing our God? What's keeping me from getting rid of all the sin in my life so that I can have eternal life with our Father and with Jesus Christ? Verse 44, Jesus cries out, Whoever believes in Me does not only believe in Me, but the One who sent Me. The One who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me shall stay in darkness. Our Jesus, our Savior, our Hosanna wants us to see the light. He wants us to get out of the darkness. He wants to be our Passover lamb. He wants to deliver us from sin. He wants us to, he wants to deliver us from, from slavery. He wants to deliver us from the bondage of this world. And He's conquered the world. He's rid of the world of the evil one. And so this is now, once again, our Father's world. But He still gives us this choice. Do you want to follow Him? Do you want to believe in Him? Do you want to put your faith in Him? Do you want to commit your life to Him? Our God is calling us out of darkness. He's calling us to come to Him. Calling us to die to ourselves. Just like He was willing to die like the kernel of wheat to be, to be given for, for so many. He just wants us to die to ourselves and have Him in our life. He wants us to be baptized into His death so that we can have eternal life. You can do that today. You can be baptized into Christ. Or if you've already done that, you can turn your life back to Him. Realize you don't no longer need 
the worldly desires. You no longer need to live a life of sin. If there's anything our congregation can do for you, anything that that the elders of our congregation can do, please come while we stand and sing. Bar on high, someday you'll